Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was gonna say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are go for launch. Hello and welcome everybody to the Almost Sideways podcast. We are here with episode 29. I am your host, Terry Plucknett. And with me, as always, from Federal Way, Washington, is Todd Plucknett. From Lawrence, Kansas, is Zach Saltz. Uh, Todd, I'm going to start with you. What are your reactions to the uh, college football playoff? Uh, I was mostly happy other than... I really don't think Notre Dame should have actually made the top four, but I love that Oklahoma gets to play Alabama, so we get to see Alabama lose to a, an actual offense. Ooh, that's a hot take. Ouch. That's a hot take. Zach, what do you think? Uh, I'm just really glad Alabama and Oklahoma made it again. I really feel like, um, I, you know, I was just, uh, I, I think I don't think anyone expected them to make it. You know, I think Clemson was a real shocker to everyone. So Cinderella story really came there's out of so nowhere. Much, there's so much parody in college football. Yeah, it's great to see. Yeah, yeah. I, if I was actually ranking them, I would have had Clemson 1, Alabama 2, Oklahoma 3, UCF 4, and then just say screw it and go with that. Ooh, ooh. I would say I think I think they got it right. Um, it, it's interesting where last year they, they definitely went for the four best teams. This year they went for the most deserving teams because I think Georgia definitely deserves to be in that top four if you're talking best teams because of how hard they played Alabama and they should have won that game. But Oklahoma was definitely more deserving. I actually just posted an article today, I don't know if you guys have actually seen it yet, on what the eight-team playoff would look like and why it needs to happen now. Um, and why them getting this right is a reason for needing an eight-team playoff. So if you want to check it out, yeah, on, on, uh, on, our, uh, on our blog, you can uh, find, find me talking about the, uh, the eight-team playoff. Uh, who wins the Heisman? Uh, I I mean, like uh, a couple weeks ago, I saw Kyler Murray was at like five to one, and I would have jumped on that if I was uh, in the desert. I think he actually won the Heisman yesterday. Yeah, I uh, I think so too, especially since no one had really has really had that Heisman moment, that breakout performance, and it, it's been it's been between Tua and Kyler the whole time, and the fact that Tua got hurt. And wasn't on the field for the defining moment of Alabama's season. I think handed it to Kyler. Uh, if if Tua was on the field for that, Tua wins the award. But I think it's well, Kyler's. It sort of devalues his season, really, considering Jalen Hurts looked just as good as Tua has at all, like the whole season in in that second half. Just like Tua took over for them in the national championship game last year in the same kind of situation against Georgia. In but the same what, what I think is interesting <laughs> is that. Dennis Haskins has ha- had the best season in Big Ten history, and he's an afterthought. He might not even get an invite. <laughs> I think they'll invite. I think they're inviting three. And if they invite four, I think the fourth will be Gardner Minshew. What do you think, Zach? I think Eno Benjamin should have won it because he was the MVP of my college football fantasy team. <laughs> or, uh... That was Dorch. <laughs> or Dorch. <Greg> Dorch. <laughs> Dorch. Yep. He was pretty cool too. Who was the one you when had, Todd? Injured. It was a. Uh, it was Lil Jordan. Uh yeah, Lil Jordan Humphrey. But I mean, he he wasn't <laughs> always in my lineup. <laughs> oh, some great names in college football. 
So, so before we get into movies, we will eventually get there. But there's so much going on in sports right now. Todd, I, I have to go to you first. Um, what in the world are the Mariners doing? Uh, uh, they are gutting the team. Gutting it. <laughs> gutting it. What do you think of the Cano and Diaz trade? I like it. I mean... I, I was telling you, getting rid of your closer a year early is better than a year late. And we actually were able to create value with that instead of letting him suck next year and then having no value. Zach, what have you heard about this trade? What do you think? Um, I think the Red Sox are the best team in baseball, so it doesn't really matter. There you go. No, the Braves got Donaldson and McCann back. They're, they're right there. Yeah. And uh, and the Red Sox currently don't have a closer. That's that's kind of troubling. Yes, it is. But they're World Series champions, which is more than the Mariners. That, can that's say. very true. That's very true. I, I think uh, I I was sad to see Cano and Diaz go. I I loved when we got Cano. I was like the biggest fan of that signing because I think it was something that made us actually legitimate in the in the baseball world. Um, I wish. Uh, it had worked out a little better. I, I think he doesn't get traded if he doesn't get suspended. I think the suspension is what is what uh, killed him with the, with the Mariners because ever since they got him, they've been competitive. He may have not been the player he was for the Yankees, but they've been competitive and on the doorstep of the playoffs every year since they got him. But, and, he, um, and he was on steroids too, so that helps. Well... I mean, he only... This is the thing. Everyone's like, oh, has he been on it for a decade or just now? He gets tested every year, and he just now failed. I, I don't know. I, I, I don't necessarily go with that that much, but um, he did get caught with it this last year, so sure, throw away this last year, and I think it left enough of a sour taste that, that uh, Mariners front office saw an opportunity to get rid of the contract, and yeah, they're going, they're going for everything now, so we'll see what ends up happening. All right, that's, that's enough sports. Uh, there, there's so much no going kidding. on right now, man. We got to talk about it, though. We got to talk about it. Okay. Um, now let's let's really get into the opening of our show and the most important part, really. Zach, what are you drinking? Well, uh, I would say that I'm drinking bargain basement Costco wine, but this time I'm actually drinking um, a wine that I got because Costco is about 30 miles away from where I live. And uh, this wine, the, the, listen kids out there, all listeners out there, if you want some solid advice on wine, this is the one piece of advice I have. The best wines are always the ones between 10 and $20. Don't go above 20 stay below 20 This one was $15, and it had a little 91 on the little marker, so that made me think it was half-decent and a little pretentious. <laughs> I can't remember what it's called. Do you know what kind it is? Oh, it's red. It's red. <laughs> I, looks like Merlot. I think, it, I think it's oh, Merlot. Oh, it's not Merlot. I think that, it's how Merlot. Dare you. Shame on you. Or, or is it a Pinot Noir? Uh, I didn't realize that Pinot Noirs could be red. Pinot Noir is red. Pinot Grigio is white. Don't ask questions like that up in wine country. Looks like you're some kind of dumb. Oh. <laughs> Are you chewing gum? <laughs> oh, Todd, what are you drinking? Uh, I am drinking uh, Espelon Silver Tequila, and uh, it's very drinkable. I always like this, and uh, it's serve the only way you can drink uh straight tequila and that is room temperature so 
Here, here. There, there you go. There you go. I, uh, I have uh, another random craft brew. Uh, this is the Ecliptic Brewing Company uh, out of, I think it's Portland. I'm going to say Portland. Um, and this is their Quasar Pale Ale. It's pretty good. It, it's light, but it's got a good bite to it. Let's see here. Yep, out of Portland. 6% ABV. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. I'll take it. And it's got this really cool can with, like, stars and space and stuff on it. It was really the can that, that sold it for me at the store and, and turned out to be a good beer. So... We're so we're so predictable, you know. I, know. I mean, this is exactly this. This is every podcast. Yep. It's just it's some variation of the same thing. <laughs> it's like it's like the philosophy of Nietzsche. We're just doomed to repeat uh, this segment over and over again every episode. But still, so worth it. <laughs> True. <laughs> All right. Well. Well. Cheers, guys. Uh, Here. Before we get into our first movie review. Uh, Looking ahead to award season, we had some of our first big major precursors come out in um, the National Board of Review. New York Film Critics released their awards as well for this year. Uh, our first glimpse at, as to what uh, is potentially going to be Oscar favorites, Oscar frontrunners uh, come January and February. So, Todd, uh, give us your impressions on what we've seen in these, uh, in these two uh, releases we've had. Uh, so the National Board of Review uh, is usually a good indication of what uh, could eventually be nominated, other than a few categories are kind of funky on, like, d director and screenplay, they're always a little wacky, but... Uh, so Best Picture went to Green Book, and, along with Best Actor, so that pretty much cements its status as being a strong contender in uh, basically all the major categories. A Star is Born had a really strong showing... And at first reformed somehow, which I'm still trying to figure out because that movie was horrible. <laughs> and uh, the New York film critics were are are always a little bit more independent and and uh, foreign. So, but uh, Roma was n named their best picture. So hopefully that uh, uh, goes over to the Oscars as well. I don't know. It it seems like there's like six or seven real contenders, but we don't really have a front runner yet that I can really uh, that I can really come up with. So are you sticking with your uh, with the favorite right now, as your uh, as your favorite? I I don't see why not. It's it's one of the it's definitely one of the ones that is uh, the one to, one of the ones to beat, and uh, it has been one of the best reviewed movies of the year too. So yeah, that that is true. Um, so if you're saying there's like there's like six movies, get give us like that short list that you're thinking are uh, are right there at the top. Well, I would say that'd be A Star is Born, Green Book, uh, Roma, The Favorite, If Beale Street Could Talk, and I don't know, I'd say that that's pretty much the, the main ones that I that have a real shot at winning Best Picture. And maybe First Reformed from what it sounds like. E yeah, I guess. Well, that would be all A24. Isn't First Reformed A24? It is. Like, that seems like the film that they're really pushing this year. Even more so than, like, 8th grade or mid-90s or anything like that. I think it's shaping up to be an interesting Best Actor uh, race also with uh, with Bradley Cooper from A Star is Born, Ethan Hawke, First Reformed. Uh, you also have uh, 
Vigo, Mortensen getting a lot of buzz for for Green Book too. So you've you've I definitely Mahershal Ali would be right. Yeah, he he's got to be right in there nomination. too. Yeah. So so it's it's a pretty big heavy hitter category for that, in, including some names in in Cooper and Hawk and Mortensen that have multiple nominations and have yet to get that award. So uh, it could be a really a really heated race in that. Uh, we'll we'll be getting more and more uh, precursors coming out. Uh, Todd, do you know what are the the next few that uh, we'll be looking for? I believe this week uh, the Golden Globe nominations come out, and I think SAG is either like the day after or the week after. So, a couple right. big ones yeah. coming out pretty soon. Yeah, some big ones, and those will definitely give us a a good shape of what of what the race is going to look like. Another little bit of news uh, to pass along. Uh, this week officially spelled the end of uh, the Filmstruck streaming service. Uh, it was something we haven't talked really about it on uh, on the podcast. Uh, Zach and I mentioned it a little bit on uh, Adam Daily Live when we were on that. Uh, but it was uh, a great independent art house uh, streaming service that... Uh, that was canceled, but it looks like a portion of it will be uh, will be salvaged as Criterion is going to have uh, their own streaming service. Uh, so, uh, so Zach, do you think that's a? I mean, it's a it's a decent consolation, right? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, it is a bittersweet moment. You know, I was hoping that the celebrity input uh, and the you know the the online petitions by directors like Guillermo del Toro and a few others would would lead to. Um, you know, resurrecting Filmstruck as it is, but, um, you know, something's better than nothing, so I guess we'll just kind of have to see. One thing that I uh, I discovered actually this morning, uh, if you are a fan of, uh, of independent art house film or, uh, or potentially uh, some classic film, uh, if you've never checked it out, check out the Canopy uh, film streaming, uh, Canopy streaming service. Have you guys heard of Canopy? Oh, I watch it all the time. Yeah. In fact, Can- Canopy didn't didn't they just partner up with? I want to say, wasn't it A twenty four? A twenty four. They just and, released about seventy five yeah. films from A twenty four, including First Reformed, which is one of the ones that we've just been talking about as being an Oscar which we favorite. Love so much. Yeah, um, but it's it's free with a membership to a library. So if you are if you have a public library card, you can sign up for Canopy. So it's definitely something to uh, to check out if uh, if that's something that's up your alley. Canopy also has a bunch of great documentaries and yes. documentaries that are actually really hard to find on DVD. And so there, a lot of them are like educational documentaries. They partnered up with PBS and uh, in the past, and uh, you can find some great stuff on there. Always, always worth watching. All these people think that you got to subscribe to Netflix and Hulu. Canopy is better than both of them, yo, especially now. And and they have a Criterion section as well, so they've got some of those in well, there. Well, of course, yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, so yeah, definitely check out Canopy. It it'll have a lot of. A lot of the films that uh, we might mention, definitely some of the films that uh, that Zach will mention throughout <laughs> throughout our episodes. All right, well, uh, let's uh, let's officially get into this and hop into the movie that we will be reviewing. I love this movie so much. I did not really like this film at all. This is the most Zach movie ever made. You got to see it. Movie reviews. 
It's a film that's already been mentioned. It is. Uh, it has recently been named the best film by the National Board of Review, which usually is a pretty great precursor for what's going to be a contender at the Oscars, and that is Green Book, uh, a new film uh, directed by Peter Farrelly, uh, starring Viggo Mortensen and Mahershala Ali. Uh, Todd, I'm going to go to you first. Tell us uh, what this film is all about and what you thought of it. Okay, uh, Green Book is a true story about uh, a nightclub bouncer named Tony Lip Valonga. Uh, he gets a job as a chauffeur for a world-class pianist uh, uh, named Dr. Don Shirley. Uh, he's an African-American pianist, and, uh, and he goes on a tour in the South in uh, the 1960s, so inevitably you run across a bunch of predictable stumbling blocks like uh, racism, narrow-minded hosts, and uh, trouble finding reasonable lodgings and uh, places to eat. Viggo Mortensen plays Tony, and uh, Mahershala Ali is uh, Shirley. Uh, it's Peter Farrelly is a director, but you wouldn't really know it from the style of movie other than like the corny slapstick nature of the screenplay. Uh, there's a lot of one-liners, his choice of words, and the illiterate main character, the, the fight scenes, they're all really slapstick and definitely brings to mind his other movies. Uh, it's also co-written by Val Longa's son, Nick, uh, who also was a co-writer of Nick Cage's Deadfall, which I thought was really strange. <laughs> I didn't even know he's a filmmaker. Wow. <laughs> now there, what a connection. Yeah, there's a connection for you. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, the movie is easy to watch. It's a pretty breezy 130 minutes, uh, because it doesn't really challenge the audience all that much. It brushes over a lot of issues like racism and, uh, sexual orientation, but it doesn't really have anything to say about them. Uh, Shirley was designed to be an introvert, so you don't really have to dig into the actual emotion and repression that the character has, and, and Tony is a thug, so you don't really have to see his emotions either. They're, they're just not a lot of, like, real quiet sincere moments in the movie because there's a there's music playing in the background of every single shot of the movie it's like they weren't really confident enough to like actually bring the emotions out themselves so they just sort of like edited it with a ton of musical score and like soundtrack uh it's all really familiar material to me i but i mean it sort of separates itself from other movies like it because it's just as like a joy to watch these the two leads play off each other because they do have really good chemistry um but uh, it's really just a small, schmaltzy and predictable screenplay. Uh, it's really sort of old-fashioned in how it was, uh, in how it was uh, put together. It could have been like a 40s or 50s movie. But, and it's also similar to old Oscar bait like Forrest Gump or Driving Miss Daisy or especially Rain Man. Uh, one thing I liked about the movie a lot was Linda Cardellini's performance as Tony's wife Dolores. I wish I could have seen more of her. Uh, a lot of, Every other supporting character was just sort of a stereotypical character. Um, I think it's an interesting choice uh, for a movie by uh, one of the Farrelly brothers. I I was surprised to see not uh, some of their usual collaborators not pop up. Like I I could have seen Matt Dillon have like a dream role playing Tony, but unfortunately we are left with Viggo Mortensen. Um, it's not a good movie, but I can see why it's winning a lot of awards. It's easy to digest. It has a huge heart, and it takes a family approach to some serious issues, and but doesn't really tell them in a challenging way it'll be nominated for a bunch of oscars but i can't see it winning best picture it's not the kind of movie that wins anymore it's a it's a good movie for like old white people to feel good about themselves uh i would give it a lower grade but it was really fun to watch i give it two stars all right zach where are you at with this one 
All right, well, uh, this to me is a serious Oscar contending film because it is from the Paul Haggis School of Race Relations in the Movies, and I sense that the Academy Awards will really like its message of whitewashed, uh, kind of uh, revisionist uh, uh, racial history in the United States. Um, I really kind of hated this movie, uh, really almost from start to finish. Um, If you read it's it's one thing to watch the movie and try to understand it on its own level, but then if you look at the actual history of Don Shirley, uh, you see that the movie actually distorts his kind of historical, actual um, character, his lived experiences quite a bit. The filmmakers who who are all the the director and writers who are all white did not consult with Don Shirley's family, and uh, you kind of see uh, Shirley, who's the most interesting character in the film. He takes a uh, he's sort of a supporting character in this film. This this film is essentially told through the perspective of uh, Tony Lip, and that's been the source of a lot of I, I think justified criticism of this film, which is that you know you have this really fascinating, underrepresented, understudied uh, figure in the history of uh, American culture, American race relations, and American music, Dr. Don Shirley, and the film we get of his life is told through the perspective of this kind of schlubby Italian fat greaser bouncer stereotype like I, I mean, Tony Lip is funny. It's funny when he eats a bunch of pizza and he eats a, has a hot dog eating contest. But let's get real. I think Dr. Shirley is a fascinating character. And I think Mahershala Ali uh, is the best thing about the movie. He he gives a really great mannered performance and you want to know more about who this person was. I actually kind of liked the first 20 minutes of this movie. I thought it was setting up to be something potentially provocative and interesting because you see the contrast of these two characters. And I think it had an opportunity to show how both of them could overcome stereotypes stereotype. But in the end, um, because Dr. Shirley is so like limited in the way that the film shows him, the, the film is obsessed with showing the ways that he isn't black enough. So for example, there are scenes where Tony Lip shoves a piece of fried chicken in his face. There's another scene in the movie where Dr. Shirley is, uh, you know, he, he's, um, he's in a, a, a hotel with other uh, black patrons and they chastise him for not participating in a game of horseshoe. And then it leads to the penultimate scene at the end of the film where Dr. Shirley decides, oh wait, uh, I have to, in order to show that I'm black enough, I have to actually play in this black nightclub in the kind of music that earlier in the film I said that uh, I want to stay away from. He has to uh, go against his own morals, go against his own character in order for the, the film to bring smiles to, pe- to, to the white audience's faces. Um, the bottom line is I found this film pretty repulsive and, and, and disgusting, and I think what, that maybe the worst thing about it, the worst thing, and all these things to, to some degree are, are excusable, I think the worst thing about it is that it uses this title of the Green Book, which is this important historical document, the Negro Motorist Green Book, was a really vital document that showed, you know, which places African Americans uh, could maybe lodge on the road. Not always in the South, by the way. And it uses it as sort of this comic afterthought. In fact, Dr. Shirley is never seen with a Green Book. The Green Book is only mentioned in a couple scenes in the film. Why not use this opportunity to actually tell a story about the historical significance and importance of the Green Book? Why not use this opportunity to actually show what an interesting and fascinating character Dr. Shirley is instead of this schlubby character who isn't even good enough to be on The Sopranos. Um, To me, this is uh, an appalling insult, and I give it one star. Worst movie of the year. Wow. Wow. I will say the one thing I liked about this movie, besides Mahershala Ali, is I liked the set decoration of his apartment on top of Carnegie Hall. I thought that was a really cool apartment, reiterated why I wanted to know more about Dr. Shirley and less about Tony Lip. Um, I, uh... 
as I watched this movie, I I caught myself thinking I know exactly what the two of you are going to think of it, and I was absolutely right. Uh, you were going, you were, I knew Zach, Zach, you were going to be offended by it. Todd was going to think it was too safe and too feel good, too heartwarming to be, a, to be that good. Um, and it's these types of movies that are ones that out of the three of us, I always like more than you guys do. And it, it was it, that case for this as well. I'm not saying it's an amazing movie, <clears throat> but, uh, I, I enjoyed it all the way through. It's okay to have a feel good movie. Um, Zach, I understand the points you're making, and I, I think they're valid. However, I, I, on something like this, I choose to, uh, to enjoy the movie I have and not think about the movie I could have. Um, there are, there are some things that you said that, uh, I would have loved to see more of Mahershala Ali's character. However, I think these, the two leads are absolutely incredible. Viggo Mortensen gives one of his best performances in this. Uh, Mahershala Ali does an amazing job as well. Um... And it's, it is, I would say Driving Miss Daisy is probably a good comparison, kind of flipped on its head a little bit. Um, but you see some definite character development out of Ego's character. I think, uh, I think you see some definite character development out of Mahershala's character. Uh, it, it was, it was such an enjoyable movie to watch. I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I'm giving it... I'm kind of wavering back and forth, like on the three, three and a half star range. I'm gonna go three and a half stars. Wow. I totally had that nailed. Oh, and I and I knew <laughs> I knew you guys would know the exact same thing. You guys would know that I loved it, and I knew exactly where you guys would be on it as well. Um, it, it's just it was just one of those movies that I know is gonna be one of those that we are going to disagree on forever on three completely <laughs> different fronts and that's okay man we should have taken bets what adam will think of this movie oh man that's the only unpredictable thing <laughs> he's uh, he's gonna give it a three i'm, I'm saying he's giving it three that i'm gonna say right. he's gonna give it two because todd gave it two he's gonna be two and a half to three that's where that's where i'm sitting like right right in that range Okay, let me go over just a couple things I did kind of like about the movie. Maybe I am being a little harsh. Like I said, I like the set design in his apartment. I actually like the I like the cinematography and set design in the first 30 minutes. And I, I did like the scene where um, Tony Lip tells... No, excuse me. Dr. Shirley tells Tony Lip when he's uh, t- when he's winning money from the 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 black valets outside that uh, that early performance hall that he's at that you know they don't have a choice to be inside the hall. You do. I thought that was a good scene. I wish the movie had gone in that direction a little bit, but I think from showing it so much from Tony Lip's perspective, and then just you know the the comedy in this movie doesn't derive from the clash of character. Or, or, or mannerisms, it, the comedy derives from all the food that Tony Lip eats. I mean, that, that was really the only thing that people were laughing at throughout the movie, and that's the only reason I'm convinced it's a comedy. It's like every three seconds, they need to throw some Italian stereotype right at, at the Tony Lip character, you know? And, like, that's just, it's, it's lazy writing, you know? It's, it's, it's really immature, and it takes, it takes away from what could have been a potentially interesting and, I think, culturally relevant uh, uh, screenplay. Well, it brought up stereotypes of of african-american culture and then of italian culture and that was sort of the point right because they even bring that up he's like you know 
He's like, hey, if you say that all I do is eat pizza or whatever, like, I'm not going to be offended. Like, that was, I think that's sort of what they were thinking. Like, they sort of explained themselves with that, with that line. But don't you think that that's, that's like the Paul Haggis school of race relations, though. I mean, that's saying, oh, you know what, uh, as white people, we're racist, so you you people can be racist, too. That's what I mean. Like, it's why, as part of why I didn't like it, it's like, it's all just like predictable and, and, and it's, it's really just like a lazy garbage screenplay. And that's, and that's part of why I didn't like it. I, I, I don't know. I, I think you guys are, are overanalyzing a, a fun a, a fun movie. You, you're saying mischaracterize and over-dramatize Viggo Mortensen's character. It was written by his son. I mean, it, <laughs> it's... It should have been written by Dr. Shirley. So, well, Dr. Shirley didn't have a son. But, like, Dr. Shirley's family has come out against this film, saying, like, for example, the scene where they talk about how Dr. Shirley's never heard of, of uh, Chubby Checker or uh, uh, Aretha Little Franklin... Richard or little richard they've come out and said like that is flat wrong they've said you know the scene where he talks about how he's never had fried chicken that was wrong like they're historical inaccuracies and i understand the point of you know what you you review the film film you see and you know obviously uh, everyone plays around a little bit creative liberties what what have you but i think what what makes this movie what would have made this movie relevant and compelling is if this had been based on a true story instead it's based on kind of this distorted perspective a white centric perspective that i I don't think really brings the potential uh, nuances of this compelling relationship in in the way that they should have been manifested. So um, I don't know, but maybe that's what you get when you have the writer, one of the writers from uh, that Nick Cage film. Uh, that's maybe the problem. So so I, and all right. I also think there is one one of the the places that he plays that I'm pretty sure is the same place that was Don Johnson's plantation in Django. It looked like <laughs> the exact same front to the house. <laughs> That's fascinating. Now, so one thing that you mentioned, I think the scene where he mentions that he doesn't, has never heard of Little Richard, never heard of Aretha Franklin, I think he's being sarcastic and Tony doesn't catch it. Because he's realizing that Tony is only playing black music in the car to try and appease him. Well, even so, it's like, I think Do- Dr. Shirley has this really fascinating history. If you look at him as like a, you know a musician, you know he's talked about. He, he gives this really interesting speech in the movie about how um, he plays his style of music, which is not a style that black people embrace, but it's not really a style that white people embrace either. And so he's sort of caught in between. And I think that's a fascinating struggle. And I would have wanted to know more about that struggle as a character. We don't even really know his motivations for the trip. They're actually explained through the bandmates. They, we never get an opportunity from Dr. Shirley to talk about why he hired Tony Lip or why he's doing this tour anyway. They don't give him that voice or that agency. But I think as a musician, you know, I feel like, you know, th- th- this would have been a really fascinating movie to tell about his, about Dr. Shirley's relationship with music. I don't care about this stupid da- Driving Miss Daisy rev- revisionist history BS. I care about, like, him as a musician. I want to know more about him. And when you read about him, you see the distortions and the manipulation that this screenplay had, which is unfortunate. I think one of the things that that you missed in the scene at the end that you mentioned where, you know, they're trying to to finally make him black and that's why he has has his moment at the end. That's not it at all. For the first time he's able to be himself because he sits up there and plays Chopin. Well, yeah, I and think that's that's what the that's what the screenwriters wanted to. But the for, but for me personally that scene it it meant to me oh he's finally realizing that he's black but i see what you're saying terry i think that was the point of what the screenwriters were trying to to say with that well, no it was it was also that he he was finally playing his birmingham show 
like he played his Birmingham show, the one he wanted to do, not the one he didn't want to do. Exactly. I, that, yeah, yeah. Be- because he couldn't he couldn't play at the he couldn't play at the Whites Only Hall. I mean, I get that he had to go somewhere else because they wouldn't let him eat dinner. But I don't know. I just read the scene as again this kind of whitewashed, very white centric view of this this multi dimensional character who should have been more fully explored. But we'll agree to disagree. Yeah, and and I I agree that if if we had seen a little bit more character development out of him, I like they made him, they kept him a mystery for for uh, for a lot of it, and a lot of parts of him remained a mystery throughout the film. Um, and part of it was because Tony Lip never stopped talking, and that was I mean they even mentioned that that he he just never stops talking, never lets anyone else get in a, get in a word edgewise. Um, but uh, well, and they also they brush over that entire thing where he has that like homosexual encounter in like a bath hall or something, and it's like they, they just compl- they just like brush it off like that was it. It could have been something where there could have been a sincere moment between them, and instead it's just like it was just like a one off, and that was it. It's like they never dug into anything, and like it's because it was a family friendly movie and not a more interesting movie, which is why the director is the wrong choice for this movie. So who should have directed it? That's that's the real question. Since Peter Farley was clearly clearly the wrong choice. I don't know. I, I mean, it would have been a completely different movie. You could go a number of different directions. We'd have to do a recasting on that. I think Barry Jenkins. Where was Barry Jenkins? That, I, I was going to say directing something. Barry Jenkins would have been would have been one that could have done a decent job on it. Um, but what what I find interesting is how. I mean, you look at this film. Yes, it's gonna be. It's gonna get a lot of Oscar nominations. It's gonna get a lot of buzz there. Um, how is this not catching on at the box office? I mean, this is this is the type of critical darling that catches on at the box office. Like the first thing I thought of after I watched it is this is this is the King's Speech. You know, th- this mm-hmm. is that kind of a movie. That's that that feel good tell history the way you want to tell it to to um to make the good movie the good feel good um safe movie that is gonna take you know deep themes and make it a popcorn movie um why hasn't this caught on at the box office why hasn't this become a big hit it doesn't star matt damon and eddie murphy like (laughs) because that's what it would have done like 20 years ago Man, At, well, Crash didn't make a lot of money, and it won Best Picture. Yeah, but that—I mean—that's a—that's a different. I don't think that's necessarily the same. I—I—I—I kind of get what you're saying with Crash, but I don't think it's in the same ballpark. Because Crash never, never really—it it was never the, the kind of lightheartedness that this is. This is well, Rain Man. The closest relative is Rain Man. Yeah, I mean, Rain Man, Driving Miss Daisy, King's Speech, King's Speech, all all those. It, that's why it has the pedigree. Yeah, it has the pedigree. Yeah, but that's it, not it what wins not, anymore. I know, and it may not have the studio backing that some of those films had either. If if Weinstein was produ- was producing this ten years ago, then watch out. Yeah, I would have won for but, sure. Yeah. Well, uh, it, it, you can kind of listen to what we're saying and decide for yourself if this is a movie that you're gonna that you're gonna want to see. Um, I like this type of movie. I'm giving it three and a half stars. Todd saw some value in it, but uh, but ultimately thought it was a little too a little too safe, and it could have been edgier. He's giving it two. Uh, Zach was offended by the way it uh, it retold history, and is giving it one star. So take what you want from that, and figure out which uh, which opinion 
is closest to yours, and you'll decide whether you should uh, go see it or not. But you will be hearing more from this movie uh, in the coming months as award season kicks up. That was a good discussion. I like that one. And I knew I knew exactly that that was how it was going to go, too. It's time to move into our Spotlight segment. Spotlight. And for our Spotlight segment, uh, Zach, why don't you tell us what we're doing today? All right. Well, for our Spotlight segment, we are celebrating the 30-year anniversary of one of the greatest Christmas films of all time. And you know what? If you say it's not a Christmas film, don't come at me, okay? Because you're just totally wrong. This was a, this has been a debate that has been long settled, okay? Die Hard is a Christmas movie because <laughs> not just because it takes place at Christmas, but because it celebrates Christmas themes. And so, 30 years ago, Die Hard came out. We're approaching the Christmas season. Tis the season uh, to enjoy one of the classic uh, movies of the 1980s. And in honor of that, we thought it might be fun to recast it. All right, yeah. So recasting Die Hard, this was a, this was definitely a, a, a tough one to, to look at. Um, this is a film that uh, among us has been uh, discussed often, as uh, as Zach and I had a long-standing argument that uh, on what was the greatest action film of all time. I said Die Hard, which he had never seen, and he said Speed, which I had never seen. And then in college, we made each other watch the films and. We agreed to disagree because I still say Die Hard and he still says Speed. Um, but we both like the film. We, I mean, we I both like. We I think both like. It's a great them, yes. movie, but Speed's better. But Die Hard's a great yeah, movie. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll admit that. Yeah. Speed is a good movie that stole most of its plot points from Die Hard. Um, anyways, let's uh, <laughs> let's get into our, our recasting here. We're gonna uh, recast some of the main characters and then throw out some of the some of the minor guys uh, just for fun. But we're going to start with uh, with writer and director. This one I had a tough time with because I, I mean Die Hard is kind of on another level when it comes to uh, when it comes to action films. In in uh, it's I mean it is this kind of fun action film, and you see a lot of these fun action films kind of going on now. But I, it, there's something more to it, and it, it it's hard to I mean. It would have been easy to just go and find okay, what's what's the latest guy who directed Dwayne Johnson in a movie? Who directed Skyscraper? Let's make him direct that. No, no, I didn't want to do that. It had to have some substance there. Um, so I took a little bit of a, of a step out. Someone who has uh, shown that he can do a lot of different things. Um, my writer-director combo is going to be Ben Stiller. I mean, because wow. it, it'll it'll be a fun action film. It'll be a little edgier than uh, than Tropic Thunder, but he's shown that he can ha- he can have the the uh, the the comedy mixed with the action, just a little heavier on the action this time instead of the comedy. And he's got that uh that what Showtime show right now with Paul Dano and Benicio del Toro, that prison show. That he's pretty good at director in that, I guess. Yeah, I, I've I've always thought that Ben Stiller is a very underrated filmmaker. Yes, because you love keeping the faith. He didn't make that one. That was Edward Norton. He's just in oh, that shoot. one. I got them confused. Sorry, this cable guy. Getting to me. Okay, cable nice. guy. Yeah, cable guy. Oh, that's what I was thinking of. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Todd. Who's your writer director? 
Uh, okay, so I went with my writer as uh, Joe Carnahan, because uh, he's good at writing like gritty sort of screenplays, but I don't want him to direct it because his action gets really overblown. And so with the director, I went with the best the director of the best action movie since Die Hard, and that's Sam Mendes, uh, just because I think it would be awesome. All right. That would be good. Zach, who do you have? Well, for my writer-director, I was looking for someone maybe not too unlike Peter Farley, who was willing to explore a new genre, and uh, this person has explored new genres before with success, and that person is Adam McKay, except I don't know if he knows how to direct an action movie, so I'm, I'm bringing back to the director chair the one and only Jan de Bont. He hasn't directed a movie since Laura Croft's Cradle of Life. He's due for one. Adam McKay writer, Jan de Bont director. That would be an insane, <laughs> an insane combination. I like it. Wow. All right. <laughs> okay, so let's now look at uh, our main character, John McClane, originally brought to us, and then over and over and over again brought to us by Bruce Willis. Um, the, he played a very different character in the first one than he has like in all of them, all of them since. Uh, I was looking at Bruce Willis when Die Hard came out, and at this point he was pretty much mostly known as a television actor, uh, he and and a comedy guy. I mean, he he was on he was on a he'd done comedies, he'd done that, and the, so this was a real step out for him in taking on uh, an action film like this. But he also showed his uh, his comedic timing through it as well, and so I, I love my choice for John McClane. My John McClane is Donald Glover. Uh, because oh, he is he's right around that same age that Bruce Willis was he's known more for uh, for his other endeavors he's not really he's never been thought of really as an action star but I think his his uh, the persona he could bring to a role like this I think he would n- knock it out of the park so my John McClane is Donald Glover Childish Gambino yes I like it I, I will say uh, when uh, when the Han Solo movie came out, uh, I, I'm a, I'm a teacher. I teach middle schoolers and they were getting all excited for the Han Solo movie. Cause they're like, dude, childish Gambino's in it. I'm like, dude, he's, he was an actor first. What? Okay. Whatever. <laughs> it made me sad. Okay. Todd, who's your John McClane? Uh, so I'm gonna have to change up the script, the script a little bit, but I went the best new action star in Hollywood. And so my John or Joanna McClane is at Emily Blunt. <laughs> Ooh, interesting. Nice. Mary Poppins. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I, Any reason? Because I I don't know. I want I wanted a I want I want to take a different direction. And I also think this movie is really hard to recast, so I I just went a completely different direction and I'm going to make it make it something different. But Emily Blunt would be awesome. I could see totally see her pulling off those lines that those John McClane lines and it would be fun to watch. I, I love Edge of Tomorrow. And she was really good in that. Yeah. I love the five-year engagement. Yeah, that was not an action movie. Oh. <laughs> but she was really good in it. She she was really good in it. That is so correct. Pratt, Chris Pratt. So, she was also good in Salmon Fishing in Yemen. Isn't it in, in the, the Yemen? Yemen. Yeah. <laughs> the Yemen. All right. Zach, who is your John McClane? Well, y'all are forgetting something very important about John McClane, okay? You know what? He can be this... He, he, 
he's an action star, he can kick ass, but you gotta remember, John McClane is a blue collar action hero, okay? He's, he's got a little bit of a pop belly, he's wearing a wife beater, he's not the most debonair James Bond type persona, so you gotta go with someone with a little bit of a gut, someone who's not afraid to, to, to share the love, to eat a pizza every once in a while, to enjoy life, to enjoy some fried chicken. I'm going with Fat Vigo Mortensen as John McClane. You know what? He's gained the weight. You know, his fat persona was really nice. Vigo Mortensen, Fat John McClane. Oh, Fat Vigo Mortensen as John McClane. There's no way he could, like, ride a rope through a window. He's he's way too old. And and John McClane wasn't fat. <laughs> well, he was a little pudgy. I mean, no, no he wasn't. You know. he no, was he totally wasn't. Fit. I, I think he was a little schlubby. This is, this is like 33-year-old like Bruce Willis here. I mean, there is no way. Sure, sure. Well, this fat, is John McClane's a little fat older. Fat Viggo Mortensen could star in the remake of Die Hard 6, not Die Hard 1. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, okay, I'm just I'm just talking about, you know, someone who could kick ass, and it's kind of, you know, you said Bruce Willis, you know, he was a lightweight kind of comic television actor well Viggo Mortensen can make the transition too and we've seen him kick ass before in that Russian movie like you know and and um um uh history of violence you know he could do it all right all right Terry doesn't like it. I, I hate Using it the history of violence to your credit is interesting <laughs> <laughs> yeah let's make let's make Die Hard into a history of violence that's a great route to go mm. It would be a good title for it. <laughs> uh, okay. Let's move on. Hans Gruber is next on our list. The uh, the main antagonist uh, brought to us by the late, great Alan Rickman in really his, his, his first big starring role. Uh, I had a tough time thinking of someone that could take this. I was trying to... I was thinking of maybe going another direction... Because he's like, I think he's German, and uh, and so I'm like, okay, do we want to go with someone in that in that vein, or do we want to go with a different nationality to kind of mix this up a little bit? Um, and then I found someone that that hasn't really done a whole lot recently, has kind of tried to become a big thing at times, but I could, I think he kind of looks like Alan Rickman and could totally slide into it and basically just play Alan Rickman, which. I don't necessarily like, but I think it could he could do a good job, and that is Matthew McFadden, uh, who's most known as uh, Mr. Darcy from Pride and Prejudice, but he's also been uh, he was the lead in the new Three Musketeers that was made in 2011. He's done a bunch of different things, uh, usually as a as a supporting character, but I could totally see him being uh, being Hans Gruber, especially Alan Rickman's version of Hans Gruber. I could totally see him embodying that character so that's my pick matthew mcfadden i don't really love it but that's that's where i'm going yeah, so either. far your director is a bigger star than either of your actors i know okay. i know <laughs> I, I was thinking i was thinking of going with someone like riz ahmed and going that route i thought that could have been really interesting but i decided to keep it a uh, keep it with uh with this so that's what i'm going with no matthew mcfadden was still alive yeah is he doing work How's how's he doing? Here, what is what is he up to? Oh, he he's a, he's in the Nutcracker that just came out. Oh, well, there we go. Yeah. And he was in the uh, the Howard's End miniseries that was on TV. 
So he, he's doing some stuff. Somehow that's not surprising. I feel like he's more of a Howard's End actor than a Die Hard actor, but hey, that's just me. <laughs> well, you'd say the same thing about Alan Rickman. It was his first movie, though. Yeah. And then he turned out to be, you know, do all this other stuff. But he would have... He, yeah. No, I'm going with it. Hans, Hans Gruber is very literate. That's true. Yes. He probably read Howard's End. He's probably an E.M. Forrester fan, actually. Yes. That's what I'm going with. See, that's why I picked it. Right there. That was it. I like it. All right. Todd, please tell me you have a better uh, choice than I do. Uh, well, I think so, but we'll see. Uh, so, uh, once again, I went somewhat different, and you're going to have to change his name. So, I went with Most Deaf, because... <laughs> Ooh, interesting. I, he's uh, He can definitely be diabolical and sinister and sort of intimidating, and every movie is better with Yasin Bey, I, I feel like, so... I feel like Mostef as the antagonist in the in this movie starring Emily Blunt would be really intriguing. We never see Mostef anymore. I know. Well, he changed his name. Yeah. Again, you're yeah. Him and Matthew McFadden are living somewhere in uh, you know Sri Lanka or something. I don't think they've done anything since the Bush administration. <laughs> um, okay. Well, uh, my pick for. Uh, Hans Gruber, you're right, Terry, it's very hard to replace such an iconic performance um, by the late, great Alan Rickman, but I did have someone in mind who could play who could play a very erudite, sophisticated villain, but someone who, you know, with a machine gun is quite frightening. And that person who I'm teaming alongside Fat Viggo Mortensen is Mahershala Ali. Um, I think that he could bring uh, sophistication and wit and erudition and articulation to the role, and uh, I sound like Stephen A. Smith a little bit. Um, and uh, uh, I think it would be... He'd be a great addition. Uh, I actually don't don't hate that pick. That that would that would be really interesting. Exactly, and you know what? You try having you know uh, Fat Miko Mortensen throw a chicken wing at you at at him. I mean, he wouldn't take that. Uh, yeah. Imagine the possibilities. Yeah, it just just you just stop bringing Vigo back into it, and it'll sound a whole lot better. Will do. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, next on the list, we are going to go with Holly Gennaro, or Holly McLean, depending on how you want to look at it. This is uh, this is John McLean's wife, or potentially soon to be ex-wife, depending on how things go. Uh, he dry, or he flies all the way from New York to L.A. to see her on Christmas, and uh, and to find out that she is gone with her maiden name. She's not really. Uh, She's not really that into him anymore, or trying to pretend she's not that into him anymore. Anyways, uh, it was originally brought to us by Bonnie Bedelia, and the actress I'm going to go with in in this role is Kate Mara. She's someone that uh, is, is, she's got a little feist to her, she can fight back for herself when she needs to. Uh, I think, uh, yeah, I think she would she would really pull it off. I could see chemistry between her and Donald Glover, uh, and uh, yeah, that's who I'm going with. Kate Mara, my Holly Gennaro. It's always good to see Kate Mara. Always good. Todd, what do you got? Uh, well, first I got uh, so there was this TV movie that most Def was in with Alan Rickman. I just found. Whoa! Which I think it's very interesting. <laughs> uh, but. My Holly Gennaro is uh, uh, with uh, Jessica Paré, who is probably most known from, like, Mad Men or something. 
because uh, she can play a victim sort of really well, but she also has a mean streak, and she can put up with uh, Joanna's, uh, uh, like, huh. and uh, plus she played a pretty awesome lesbian in Lost and Delirious, so she is going to be my Emily Blunt's wife. Great and, uh, shout out to Lost and Delirious. That's a great movie. It is. One of the best movies of 2001. Agreed. All right. I'm surprised you didn't pick John Krasinski. I thought that would have been the natural choice, but maybe that's just too easy. No, oh, yeah, that wouldn't have been good. All right, Zach, who do you have for Holly? Well, if you know, if I'm going with Viggo Mortensen, I you know I'm gonna have to go with Linda Cardinelli as Holly Gennaro. I mean, <laughs> Cardellini. Cardellini. Excuse me. What I say? Um, yeah, she was great on Freaks and Geeks, and she was also, hey, it's the second Mad Men star on, in this uh, reboot as Holly Gennaro. How about that? Yeah. I, did, I, like I didn't know Fat Vigo was in, uh, was in Mad Men. <laughs> yes, he was the, uh, the fat sales associate who uh, ate all the chicken and indulged in Italian stereotypes. I, did, I didn't know that Tony Lip was Don Draper's stunt double. <laughs> he was he was big in the advertising agency in new york in the early 60s you know he and don partied you know what they had the big uh you know the the kickbacks at christmas and uh you know lots of alcohol aye, aye, aye. and chicken and whole, whole pizzas uh, all right moving on uh the last one we're all going to do is uh sergeant al powell Brought to us by Reginald Vell Johnson, um, who I find so interesting that this movie basically started a sitcom. Because if it wasn't for Die Hard, we wouldn't have had Family Matters, where he, uh, where he is the uh, the father of the the Winslow household. Um, so I was trying to find okay, who who kind of looks has that classic look of a cop? Because that was what made. What made Sergeant Powell so great is he had that classic look, and then I got a face in my head, and I couldn't get it to go away, even though I was trying to do something different. My Sergeant Powell is Keenan Thompson, because he basically looks like Reginald Vell Johnson, and just like he could like basically do the exact same character, um, which isn't what I wanted. But once I thought of Keenan, I couldn't think of anybody else. So, Keenan Thompson, Sergeant Powell. I could, I could understand that. Yeah, it's understandable. Yeah, it is. <laughs> All right. Well, for mine, I went with someone who I was. Uh, I went with a sitcom star, a past sitcom star, maybe from around that time actually. Uh, someone who could be the fatherly figure now and uh, be like too nervous to pull the trigger. And the second, after Lita and Cardellini, Boy Meets World star, uh, and that is Ben Savage. He's going to be my <laughs> Sergeant Al Powell. <laughs> What? <laughs> yes, what? That's a terrible choice. Fred Savage would be a much better choice than Ben no. Savage. Why? I love that. Of, of all the actors you pull out of your ass, you have Ben Savage. Okay. Uh, okay. I guess we're, we're sticking with the ABC, you know, uh, TGIF lineup, I guess. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, okay. Uh, Zach, I, can can I can I make a prediction on who your Sergeant Powell is going to be before you cast him? Uh, sure. It, it, I I feel like this is the perfect spot to put Peter Simonashek in. 
that's a good suggestion, but I actually didn't go with Peter Shimoda. Oh, man. I know. It was, it was a good idea. Um, I actually think, Terry, you might have the actor's name wrong. When I was looking at this and writing down my, my notes, I thought his name was Dwayne T. Robinson. See, I always call him just uh, Carl, Carl Winslow. No, Isn't you're looking name? at the wrong the wrong guy. That's you, that's oh, the you're police right. chief. That's oh, okay. Paul Gleason. Ah, uh, okay, got it. Okay, see, I mean, I just always call him Carl Winslow. So I, I don't. I, do they actually refer to him as Al Powell anywhere in the film? Sorry, I, mean, I think. Oh, he. Um, what is does McLean call him Al? I, I don't think so. think so. I think he's. Al. I think he calls him Carl. And then Carl and then. Is- Carl's the name of one of the bad guys. Yeah, no, he calls him Al. He calls him Al. Oh, what? Okay. Well, it's good to know. In any event, um, I, 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 I take your Peter Simonischek suggestion, and I will raise you one. You know, when we're talking about um, Al, Al Pal, we're talking about an authority figure, someone who's really tough, and uh, but also no. comic at the same time. And the first person I thought of, uh, based kind of on what we talked about in our last episode is Constance Wu. I think she would make, bring a great charisma and spirit to the role, and she needs to be in more films, so. Perfect role. <laughs> that sigh was the perfect reaction, Todd. That was the perfect reaction. <laughs> ben uh, Savage is way better than Constance Wu. That's debatable. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, the battle of the network, ABC network stars. I think Constance Wu. Uh, I think I think I definitely win with Keenan Thompson. I think that he he he's better than both of what you had. And and I I will say I think I have the best John McClane, Donald Glover. I mean, you can see it, right? You can see it. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of. I, I've got a couple more that I wanted to throw out there. Uh, Police chief. Uh, Dwayne T. Robinson, uh, brought to us by uh, by Paul Gleason. Oh, I guess we're gonna need some more FBI guys. Um, uh, I, I I went kind of full circle in a different way. Uh, Paul Gleason, yes, he's known for being in Die Hard, but he's more known for being the principal in Breakfast Club. So my uh, Dwayne T. Robinson is gonna be Anthony Michael Hall, nice. who I actually could see doing a really good job in that role. Yeah, I can see it. And then uh, the other one I had is uh, Harry Ellis, the coked-out co-worker of Holly that's trying to get in her pants. Uh, I went with Michael Ingarano because you always have to have a William Miller in every movie. (laughs) And he would totally (laughs) rock that role, too. (laughs) I like it. That's what I got. Todd, do you have anything extra? Uh, Well, for Argyle, the the limo driver, I went with Charlene Yee uh, because I... Feel like she would have really interesting uh, dialogue with uh, with uh, Emily Blunt, and uh, I, I feel like she could really nail the line delivery and stuff. So that was the only one I had. Zach, do you have anybody else? Oh yes, uh, I wanted to cast the limo driver. I'm not really sure what his name Argyle. is. Argyle. Oh, Argyle. Okay, excuse me, uh, Argyle. Thank you for paying and, attention. Uh, Yes, um, and I wanted to, I wanted Dave Franco to be the new Argyle. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. Um, <laughs> let's move on. Uh, if you haven't seen Die Hard, do go check it out. Awesome, cri- wrong awesome Christmas movie. Awesome Christmas movie. Even though it came out in July, um, it is time to move into our power rankings. You can't top that. Yeah, that's the movie about the horse. I'm going to pull an audible at the last minute here. I'm kind of nervous now. Power rankings. Not including Fargo. 
Can't choose Fargo ever again. And Zach, you won our game last time. Oh, Todd, do you have the the uh, the tally that that we put together? Yes. So so Todd and I over the over the uh, Thanksgiving holiday decided to go back through our podcast and put together a tally on uh, on who has won our game that we play with our power rankings the most. And so we're going to keep track of this from uh, from podcast to podcast. So Todd, what is the what is the current tally? Well, uh, we didn't start this game until what episode eight, something so, like that. Yeah. Uh, so currently, I'm in the lead, nine and a half uh, victories. <laughs> uh, Zach has five and a half because we did Perfect. tie one because every tiebreaker like was exactly so, the same. Yeah, we just so decided you... we were going to uh, do Vegas movies because we were going to be in Vegas. Yeah, that, that, that was the tie. That was the tie. It was perfectly planned out. So, nine and a half, five and a half, and Terry has five. So, this could decide uh, third place, wow. second, third place. I've got a good feeling about this one. But, uh, but Zach, tell us what we, are, uh, what we are ranking tonight. All right, well, we are ranking the best opening ten minutes of any movie. And you know what? Those 10 minutes could be title credits. They could be an opening sequence. They could be an opening scene, an opening musical number. They could just be a blank screen for 10 minutes like they used to do in the old musicals with they, when they did like the overture stuff. So the best opening to a movie up to 10 minutes is the way I, I defined it. All right. All right. There's so many great openings to movies. It's, you know, it's, a, it's a real challenge trying to narrow it down, but uh, I, I think we're up to the challenge. It is. It is. This was this was a fun list to to look at. Um, uh, Zach, why don't you start out with this one? You haven't started out with anything yet. Uh, number five on your list. All right. Well, number five on my list is one of my all-time favorite comedies, and it has a great opening sequence, and that is Naked Gun thirty-three and a third. It is a dream sequence of Frank Drebin, um, and he is in the lobby of this big bank, and of course, it, it's actually a parody of. Uh, the opening of The Untouchables, which itself is a parody in a way of um, uh, the Battleship Potemkin sequence. But instead of people fleeing down the Odessa steps away from the Cossacks, uh, they are, uh, it is babies uh, in uh, carriages going down the stairs and Frank Drebin is firing uh, a weapon and OJ is in the background catching the babies. And then there's a, there's a, a moment when a, a guy with a lawnmower comes and uh, it's just a great opening sequence and it, it, it's all a dream. It's a Freudian sequence that uh, shows Frank's insecurities about uh, being a potential father. Great way to open the movie and uh, RIP Leslie Nielsen. All right. I, uh, I'm always waiting for Naked Gun to come up on one of your lists, and it finally has. Uh, number five on my list is one that has been uh, mentioned briefly uh, so far in this podcast, and it's one that you guys might give me some grief for, but I love this movie, and I love how it opens. Number five on my list is Forrest Gump. Uh, you have the, the opening sequence with the, with the amazing musical theme of, with, the, uh, with this feather just, just kind of floating around, and then it finally lands at at Forrest's feet, and you you get this perfect, just snapshot of who Forrest Gump is as he starts his conversation with this woman on the park bench, and uh, and he takes just something as simple as as her shoes and launches into this story of of his entire life that he uh, that he tells throughout the movie. But it, it's just an amazingly beautiful picturesque uh opening scene that really sets up 
this incredible masterpiece of a movie. So, number five on my list is Forrest Gump. So you're talking about the whole opening sequence, or just the feather? The, like the feather, the it? feather into his conversation until it starts with the flashbacks of him as a kid. Interesting. That's what I'm going with. Okay. Nice CGI feather. Yep. Yep. All right, Todd, number five. All right. Well, first, I decided since it was so similar to character entrances, I did, I excluded the movies i mentioned on that list so that's going to exclude the godfather american beauty toy story almost famous and pulp fiction so i, I kind of did the same thing yeah I, I wanted to avoid those those ones that i talked about in character entrances entrances too okay so my number five is uh from 2005 it's greg Araki's mysterious skin and it's really just the opening credits and how weird it is because it's a like a pale white screen and pale white credits and then it's like raining colors in the background and as it slowly comes into focus and the music builds you realize that it's fruit loops falling on a, like a smiling boy and it gives you this like really weird sense of happiness going into a movie that is really dark and sad and Greg Araki does like an amazing job with his movies of making like something really depressing look really beautiful and that is like a reflection in this because that that image comes up again later in the movie in a different context and uh it really changes your perspective but uh like that that image is like something that like never left my mind so mysterious skins opening credits is my number five all right yeah i have no recollection of that opening credit sequence but i really love the film it's really interesting that you say that i have no recollection either but that's because i haven't seen it Awesome. Todd, do you feel like there's, in every Greg Araki movie, there's at least one scene that takes place at a gas station? That seems accurate. Just I, I never really noticed that. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, Zach, number four. Okay, number four is the film that actually sort of launched this discussion of uh, this this power ranking, um, and uh, that film is Magnolia from 1999, Paul Thomas Anderson's epic movie that Todd thinks is overrated, but I think is one of PTA's best films, in particular because of how amazing the opening sequence is in the film. It's actually two opening sequences, so I'm going to kind of put them together. I'll cheat a little bit. The first opening sequence involves the late, great Ricky Jay, who just passed away last week, actually, and uh, it is Ricky Jay talking about these strange, extraordinary coincidences that have happened in history. One of the one of them being uh, that a, a blackjack dealer uh, was killed by someone that he was dealing cards to, who the previous night had been uh, occupying a plane or something like that. There's another one that involves a, a a gunshot wound of someone who was trying to commit suicide, but their life would have been spared because they would have fallen on on like a surface and it would have spared their life. Anyway, and then and then the opening credits, which actually introduce all the characters and of course if you've ever seen Magnolia it's all about how these you know extraordinary circumstances have these people kind of meet over happenstance and it's just so like it, it, it's, it's so life lively you know it, it wakes you up in this we see so many movies and so many movies are just like dull and repetitive and uninteresting and unimaginative and this is PTA announcing to the world you know what look at me this is fascinating stuff it is uh <laughs> you know there's there's even like cells and amoebas in it like you know micro micro microscopic biology in it it's just a great opening sequence that it's alive you can feel the pulse of it and john c Riley's answering machine it's it's a great opening sequence love it maybe i love it more than the actual film but it's debatable 
it took me a second to remember what the opening to Magnolia was, and then once you started describing it, yes, absolutely, that is such a unique opening to a movie, and uh, and yeah, it definitely sets up that movie. I love that movie as well. Yeah, great Amy Mann soundtrack too. <laughs> not not one of PTA's best three openings though. Just, Ooh, you're crazy. crazy. I, I think that might be uh, hinting at something that's going to be on Todd's list a little later on. Uh, number four on my list. Uh, is a film that just came out a couple years ago from uh, 2016, and you guys are going to probably hate me for this as well, but I don't really care. Uh, my number four is La La Land, the uh, the amazing musical by Damien Chazelle. Uh, I was completely uh, taken away by this movie right from the start, and it starts with this amazing opening musical number uh, on the freeway in Los Angeles to the song Another Day of Sun. Uh, absolutely amazing uh amazing uh filmmaking amazing song amazing way that they shot this uh and it really puts you into this movie that's going to be this just great throwback to old school musical making uh and it 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 was outstanding just a masterful first scene and uh, a masterful movie in a lot of ways uh so number four on my list is la la land I liked it better when Federico Fellini did that exact same opening sequence in Eight and a Half, but okay, I'll go with you. Fine. <laughs> Todd, right. number four. All right, my number four is a more traditional choice. It's uh, The Social Network from 2010. Um, it's the opening where Mark and uh, Erica Albrecht are, are, are on a date at a bar. It's sort of a date, I guess. Uh, you get to know everything about the characters, especially Mark, from this one scene. And the conversation ranges from, like, friends to SAT scores to the geniuses in China or, like, and like why she doesn't have to study because she goes to BU. And it you, you get this feeling that Mark is indeed an asshole and he will always be alone, and that is reflected also in the final shot of the movie. And uh, it's just a really interesting, loud background noise-filled scene where uh, this conversation's going on and on for like maybe five minutes, but it's but it's really snappy and it's just a total vintage Aaron Sorkin stuff. And then at, right after that, it cuts to that haunting Atticus Ross, Trent Reznor, Oscar-winning score as he's running in his flip-flops through the freezing Cambridge campus. It's just a it's just a perfect way to open one of the best movies, or maybe the best movie of the decade. It's a great choice. It is a good choice. It is a good choice. All right. Zach, number three. All right. Well, number three, I'm, I'm kind of curious to see if either of you have this on your list. It's one of the great film openings of all time. You know what? If you're teaching a class on film history, it's almost a cliche that you have to show the opening to this film. And I've seen it, you know, probably 80, 100 times, something like that. And it never grows boring. And that is the opening to Citizen Kane. Uh, from 1941, uh, Orson Welles' classic. Uh, you know, if you watch movies in the 30s and 40s, um, the ending, the, the, the openings are really kind of standard, um, and this one is so unlike any opening from that era or really any other film. It, it shows, it does this kind of tilt upward with the camera going over this no trespassing sign and this barbed wire fence, and then the, the camera moves kind of slowly into what ultimately emerges as Xanadu, which is uh, Kane's enormous, ornate mansion. 
And what's so awesome about the opening sequence is that as he uses cross dissolves to move inward and closer and closer, the light in the window is always in the same position in the frame. It's always in the upper right-hand corner, which is always something cool. I didn't notice that until probably around time 25 that I'd watch the opening sequence. And then if you know Citizen Kane, you know that the whole secret of Rosebud and the whole secret of this Kane character is revealed <clears throat> in the opening sequence. The curiosity of the opening sequence, of course, is that Rosebud is his final word, but no one hears it. Who hears it? The nurse doesn't hear it. The nurse comes in after he crashes the, you know, the little snow globe. It is a, para it is a paradox, and what makes this uh, opening sequence so phenomenal and, and wonderful. That is, a, that is a great choice. That is a, definitely a classic choice. I actually uh, watched, uh, watched this in Kane recently, uh, maybe a couple months ago, for first time in a while, watched it start to finish, and uh, um, because and and I'll uh, I'll throw this out there. I've been meaning to give a shout out to the Unspooled podcast. If any of, any of you have heard of it, it is um, a couple uh, a couple people that are watching their way through the AFI Top 100 films of all time, and they actually started with Citizen Kane, which was number one on the last uh, on the last incarnation of this list, um, and I noticed kind of what you said some of the just some of the filmmaking was so daring and so different for the 40s that uh that it had to be it was so groundbreaking in what it did it had to be uh it had to be a masterpiece but yeah it it like if you ever get bored with your life and you just need a b12 shot of total and complete artistic originality and creativity just watch all of citizen came but especially the opening five minutes yes yes it's just a breath of fresh air all right Number three on my list is also one of the of the first ones that uh, come to mind for a lot of people when uh, you think of opening scenes. Uh, when it comes to opening scenes, few people do it as well as Quentin Tarantino. And uh, number three on my list is his first and potentially greatest opening scene that he's ever done, and that is Reservoir Dogs, uh, where you have this group of criminals that have come together to, to pull off this job that are getting to know each other around uh, around the table at the diner. And uh, you have conversations all happening at the same time, ranging from um, what does Madonna's Like a Virgin song really mean to why Mr. Pink doesn't tip. Uh, it is an amazing uh, opening sequence, and it really sets up, in a lot of ways, it sets up Tarantino's entire career of what he, who he is and what he's all about in the types of films that he makes. It's a masterful first scene, uh, and it is the, and it encapsulates really what uh, he's all about. So number three on my list is Reservoir Dogs. Uh, again, I don't think that's one of his best opening scenes. I think it's probably like fifth, maybe. Oh <laughs> man, You're, that's that is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> You're telling me that's better than Pulp Fiction? That's better than yes. Inglorious Bastards? Come I mean, come on, Terry. Yeah, Jackie Brown. The opening of Jackie Brown too. Up on hey, look, 110 I, Street. I mean, I love Jackie Brown more than anyone, Todd, and yet I would agree with Terry on this one. Like the opening of Jackie no. Brown is just a ripoff of The Graduate. The, the opening to Reservoir Dogs so? is a brilliant opening sequence. Well, it's Completely a great agree scene, but I, I still, I, I don't know. I like a lot of his other ones. I even like the opening of Django, probably a little bit more. That's unfortunate. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> So, my number three uh, is a movie that I've mentioned two other times on our power rankings, and that is Leaving Las Vegas. Uh, I, I love everything about this movie. It's a perfect movie. And the, the opening is definitely 
just as perfect as the rest of it. It's like this gorgeous like uh, film score that like haunts the the entire movie, and it shows Ben getting fired, and then him like dancing through the liquor aisle, grabbing all all types of booze imaginable. And Nick Cage is just absolutely in his element, and it sets a tone for the entire movie. Uh, giving he gives one of the twenty greatest performances of all time, and the Figus is able to just like craft the the aura of the movie in this opening, and like it ha- is like paved the way for the most like poetic and devastating movie I've ever seen. It's like a a, a perfect like uh, extended like sequence of of a few scenes, and I I just. I love I love everything about leaving Las Vegas, and the opening is definitely one of those things. All right, that is a great choice. Ben getting fired is my favorite scene in that whole movie. So, uh, yeah. so another thing that uh, that Todd and I did when we were tallying up uh, who's won the game the most often is Todd went through and put together a tally of how many times he's mentioned every film in his power rankings. And the fact that Leaving Las Vegas has just come up again, I think, puts it in a commanding lead. Right, Todd? Uh, it is actually tied with Pulp Fiction for the lead. Oh. And I, Pulp Fiction would be on this list if it wasn't my on my uh, character entrances list, so that probably would actually be in the lead. Ah. You and your arbitrary rules. All right. Zach, number two. All right, well, the number two film on my list is one of the few films the three of us have seen together, uh, amazingly. And it's a film that... You uh, have the Simpsons movie on your list? Yes, the (laughs) Simpsons movie. I love the Simpsons movie so much. Stripes? Or Inland Empire. That was a great one, too. But um, I wasn't there. Oh, you weren't there for... Where were you? No. I thought... No. Uh, I didn't live in Oregon. No. You don't? That was a different different group, Zach. Have you seen Inland Empire? Of course. Okay, well, that's good. Um, Anyway, uh, my number two film is uh, The Tree of Life, the great Terrence Malick film from 2011. Um, I love the way this film opens. Uh, I think it really sets up uh, the story beautifully. Uh, As we hear Jessica Chastain have this voiceover narration, um, this beautiful voiceover narration over these images of this family in Waco, Texas in the 1950s as, you know, they kind of go through their daily routines in a typical kind of Terrence Malick fashion. You know, they're kind of playing outdoors and the camera's moving all around, very free-flowing, very handheld. And uh, on the soundtrack, uh, she's, you know, Jessica Chastain is talking about the difference between nature versus grace and um, it's a beautiful monologue that really kind of sets up the whole dichotomy of the movie between the kids um, uh, love for his mother and his father and uh, it has just beautiful John Tavernay eerie uh, chant over the whole sequence and um, you know I, I don't know what you're supposed to think of it I don't know if it really it doesn't really follow a traditional linear structure like as is I guess per typical for a Terrence Malick film but um, I can't think if I were a filmmaker I would like to think that that the opening sequence that I would want to make for my movie is probably the closest to the tree of life out of any other movie I've ever seen because I think it perfectly captures a mood and an essence and a sort of spirituality that is beautiful and transcendent like the whole movie and it's and it's mysterious and um it's just perfect in 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 every way so the tree of life number two it's hard to believe it's number two but I actually found one better than it but it's amazing I think the only other movie we saw together was Rescue Dawn yeah I think you're right that, that could be it Number two on my list. Uh, number two on my list is actually a tie. I hate doing ties on this list, but I saw no other way to do it. Um, 
Number two on my list is a pair of Pixar films. Uh, one of the things that I've noticed that Pixar has done a really amazing job at is finding great ways to open their films in a way that almost feels like uh, like a silent film. Uh, it, it is it, they they've found ways, especially in these two films, uh, Up and Wall-E. They open up with these amazing sequences that uh, that feel like like throwbacks to almost like Charlie Chaplin, especially in Wall-E and how he's interacting with this. Uh, this decrepit world around him. Um, then, uh, then you have, uh, then you have up, which is this amazingly heartbreaking story of, uh, of Carl Fredrickson and his, uh, his relationship with his wife. Uh, uh, absolutely incredible filmmaking. Uh, some of the best opening, opening sequences I've ever seen that really set up two absolutely incredible movies, two of my favorite Pixar movies that, uh, that Pixar has ever put out. So I, I had to do a tie for number two with Up and Wally. Good choices. Yeah. Uh, my number two is actually also Up. Uh, hey! I think, I really think that the opening of that movie can sort of change the game for animation and how and how they're able to deal with serious subjects. Because, yeah, it is a total silent film, like a three-minute silent film about Ellie and Carl, like, growing up, getting married, her having a miscarriage, and her dying. It's like this, like, the closest, or the, the soonest, like, any movie I could ever think has brought, like, the audience near tears that I could ever think of. It was like, I mean, it's like three minutes into the movie. And Michael Giacchino's score is just amazing. The best score for any Pixar movie, for sure. And uh, Toy Story 2 and 3 also tried to do that silent film montage thing. But uh, Up really is unreachable for American animation, I think, in, in that regard. So, yeah. Number two, Up. I totally agree with everything Terry said. Hey, there is a crossover. As That was one I thought, maybe. <laughs> It, it is a great opening sequence. It's such a great opening sequence, in fact, that the rest of the movie can't possibly live up to it. And I guess that's the problem I have with Up. Like, I don't really care about the stupid kid and his dog and whatever and the balloons. Like, that opening sequence is so incredible that it should have just been a Pixar short. I've thought that, too. It also had the best uh, short film that went along with Up that Partly Cloudy is the, the, best, the best short they ever did that came along with Up. I I I uh I agree with all of what you guys are saying. However, I will say Wally's opening sequence, the rest of the film does live up to. I I still put Wally True. in like the top 2 or 3 of Pixar. True, that's a good point, Terry. Maybe it's because the main character can't talk. So so the that silent vibe just carries out throughout the rest of the film. All right. Anyways, Zach, number 1. All right, number one on my list uh, really uh, wasn't a question. When I first saw it in a theater when I was 10 years old, it blew me away. It haunted my nightmares and my dreams, and I think about this sequence a lot. And uh, in a way, it's sort of a little bit similar to the Tree of Life opening sequence. And that is the opening sequence from a movie called uh, Contact that, hey, Terry just watched, and may talk a little bit about later in this episode, a sneak preview. But um, the opening of Contact is... I think clearly the greatest opening in, in film history. It is, it shows Earth 
1997, and it starts panning backward and moving away from the Earth and going through uh, the the constellations and the galaxy, all while having these audio cues from the 20th, 20th century, um, coming from the radio and songs and political speeches and famous movements until it finally pushes back out uh, far away from our galaxy into, uh, who knows, the abyss of the universe, maybe ultimately Vega, I don't know, and then it suddenly dissolves into the eye of young Eleanor Arroway talking on the radio. CB, uh, can you, did you hear me? Uh, it's a great, great opening sequence. Wow, what a way to start a movie. Bravo, Robert Zemeckis. That sequence must have taken them years to make. It looks so beautiful. Um, on the big screen, seeing it when I was 10 years old, uh, it was probably the most amazing thing I'd ever seen in my life. So number one opening sequence, no question for me, it is Contact. I hope you like that opening sequence too, Terry. Well, yeah. I mean, how how can you not like that uh, that opening sequence and what? Well, that's how there? you start a movie. God damn it! <laughs> that's how you do it? <laughs> Show the whole universe, the history of the universe. All right. Uh, number one for me. Uh, this is really uh, breaking the the ten minute rule, but I really don't care because when I think opening sequences. The, the first thing that pops into my head, and really the only thing that can, that can even be considered as number one on my list, is Saving Private Ryan. Uh, the way they're able to, uh, the way Spielberg portrays the, uh, the Normandy invasion on Omaha Beach, uh, led by Tom Hanks as Captain Miller, is absolutely stunning. And, uh, I mean, the potentially the best piece of filmmaking Spielberg ever did, I mean... With maybe maybe something in Schindler's List, you could say, but but this this opening sequence it actually ends up being about twenty minutes long, but it is it is an absolute masterpiece, um, and I, it it just will blow you away when you watch the film and completely pull you in for the rest of it uh, because he he does such a masterful job of bringing this uh, this hell to life in in this uh in this opening opening sequence so saving private ryan had to be number one right. hard to argue with that it's a great choice uh so my number one is a movie that i love and i actually think zach watched at least most of it before i fell asleep and that's mulholland drive <laughs> uh, uh it starts out with this like purple background like 1950s jitterbug contest uh and then it like flashes like the Mulholland Drive street sign and then it like pans into the like car driving up the hill and then Laura Lena Herring is there and the, the drivers stop and they pull a gun on her and then like a car zips by and then it like shifts to like Robert Forster as a cop like investigating a crash in the area. It's like this really bizarre opening and it, it's like enigmatic and inexplicable and hypnotic and that's like basically the way the entire movie is and i really miss david lynch movies i hope he makes another one i don't think he's going to but like the movie requires multiple viewings in order to actually understand what that first like eight minute segment actually means and what the whole movie means and all the symbolism and everything it's just uh i was spellbound the first time i watched it and i will never not be spellbound by watching that movie but the opening of Mulholland Drive is something that will always stick with me. That's f- my number one. I feel like that movie really like doesn't have an opening sequence. Like it's like the entire film is just one giant sequence. 
You know, I mean, it, it, it just feels like it, it never, like everything just kind of ties into the next thing, which ties into the next thing, which ties into the next thing. And then you have to sort of. go back and watch it again at the end so you can figure out how it all ties together and place the pieces in the right place. And Yeah, I, I, I love that movie. I love that pick. I remember when we first watched it, luckily when we watched it in the DVD case was a, here are the 10 tips into figuring out what the hell is going on. <laughs> Yeah, you're like, I don't need this. And and then we watched it. Oh, no, no, we really did. (laughs) It's a good choice. It is a great film. I've seen it a couple times since I tried to watch it the first time with you, which I think I was on no sleep, so it wasn't the the movie's fault. I think we'd been movied out. Uh, But uh, the only real... I don't really recall the opening sequence that much. You know what I I recall about it is, uh, more than anything else, is the music. Like, I remember the real, like, synth rhythms of the music and i remember some of the opening titles but i don't remember the robert forrester stuff at all i should rewatch it yeah he's like he's like a investigating the crash at the right outside that party that where the where, where it took took place where i mean it was really naomi watts but it was uh laura elaine herring was like the one in the opening sequence i don't know yeah wait. it was all within that first like eight minutes way to spoil the whole movie todd that's not small. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, Zach, do you have any honorable mentions? Oh yes, I do have a couple honorable mentions. Twenty um, fifth hour, great Spike Lee movie, uh, where they find a, a dog beaten up on the side of the road. The Firm, which is another movie that sort of inaugurated this conversation. Uh, Minority Report, another great Tom Cruise movie. Great opening sequence, establishing the future a little bit. Um, Nocturnal Animals, uh, great recent Tom Ford movie. Top, you know, you know the opening sequence. You can't forget that. Yes. And then uh, the Long Goodbye, the uh, Philip Marlowe film with Elliot Gould back in the nineteen seventies. And the whole opening first ten minutes of that movie is him looking for cat food at a grocery store. That's literally the whole opening ten minutes. It's a great way to start a movie. Awesome. I don't even remember that. I, I have. Yeah, yeah, he's like looking up and down the aisle, you know, he wants to find the right cat food, but, he, you know, he, has, he needs to find the right, right brand, and he just can't find it. Ten minutes of that. It's great. It's wonderful. I don't recall it either, but that's because I haven't seen it. Uh, what a shocker. Ironically enough, on my honorable mention, I also have two Tom Cruise movies, <laughs> but they are two different ones. Uh, Top Gun, the the opening dogfight in Top Gun, I mean, you, I love that movie, and that, that opening scene just draws you right in. And the other one is Mission Impossible 3, uh, where uh, it actually opens up with this uh, really intense torture sequence where uh, where Tom Cruise, is, uh, as Ethan Hunt, is being tortured while he watches his, uh, his wife be tortured uh, by Philip Seymour Hoffman. Absolutely amazing, and uh, just completely leaves you spellbound for the rest of the movie. Uh, the other movies, uh, actually, I do have another Tom Cruise movie on my list too, uh, but he's not in the opening. It's Tropic Thunder, which starts out as kind of with that crazy, kind of similar to Grindhouse in some ways, where it has those fake movie trailers for uh, for Tug Speedman's uh, uh, latest installment of his action film, and then you have uh, uh, Kirk Lazarus in in his uh, like homosexual monk. Uh, drama with Tobey Maguire, MTV Best Kiss Award winner Tobey Maguire, and then and then obviously Al Pacino and and Booty Sweat. 
So uh, so that had to be on my list. Uh, well, the opening sequence. Jack Black's the, with the port noise. Or oh, whatever, the port but... noise. Yeah. The fart jokes. Yep. yep. Um, uh, opening sequence to Gravity is also on my list. Uh, oh, good, um, good call. Yeah, amazing, amazing. Uh, I, I had to find something that had to do with space to, to mention in here. Um, I also have, uh, if we're talking silent films, no one does it better than Charlie Chaplin, so Modern Times is on my list. As he is a, a factory worker, uh, working through uh, working through a nervous breakdown in the opening ten minutes of that, um, and I feel like there was one other one I was just about to mention, and it's completely gone. So if I think of it, I'll mention it. But those are my uh, honorable mentions. Todd. Oh no, wait! I remember it. I remember it. I had to mention it because of because of you guys. Big Lebowski, opening sequence of Big Lebowski. The the nihilists come and 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 pee on the rug that tied the room together and throws his bowling ball. Obviously, you're not a golfer. So, I had to mention it. Yeah, the Coen brothers have actually said that The Long Goodbye was an inspiration for The Big Lebowski, so another reason you should watch it. <laughs> there, there you go. I, I actually thought of that. That that's what that, I think that's what brought it up is... is it, ex- the dude hangs out in supermarkets, too. Yeah, yeah, like, except he's in, like, yeah. his boxers and a bathrobe. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Dodd, honorable mentions. All right, uh, so I have the opening to Raging Bull, which is De Niro mm. bouncing around in the in the boxing ring, which is just iconic, classic. Uh, American History X, uh, the sequence leading up to the uh, the curb stomp. This is just like a disturbing, intense way to start a movie. Um, both Kill Bills, honestly, basically the same opening. Uh, there Will Be Blood, the first sequence of him looking for oil is just amazing and then of the uh the opening action scene in drive is mm. just stunning and uh unlike anything that i've seen in a long time all those uh all those are good choices i'm surprised there will be blood didn't make your list yeah it was close i wanted to mention mysterious skin though all right well it's now time for our game Let's see if I can catch up. Zach, give us uh, give us your Adam list first. Number five, the Ten Commandments, because every time we do this <laughs> stupid segment, he has the Ten Commandments on there. I honestly have no idea how the film opens, but I'm putting it on my list anyway. Number four is Inglorious Bastards. Three, There Will Be Blood. Two, The Social Network. And number one, Up. All right. My list, I have number five, Casino Royale. Uh, number four, Inglorious Bastards. Number three, The Sound of Music. Number two, The Dark Knight. And number one, Goodfellas. Okay, I have number five, Watchmen. I'm pretty confident in that one. Uh, number four, Sunset Boulevard. Number three, The Lion King. Number two, Inglorious Bastards. And number one, The Dark Knight. That 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 was a that was a good one there. That's good. Oh. I hadn't thought of The Lion King. Okay, Adam's list, honorable mentions, A Clockwork Orange, Scream, There Will Be Blood, The Social Network. Number five, Inglorious Bastards. Number four, Sunset Boulevard. Yes. (laughs) I can't believe you got the classic (laughs) film out of it. Number three, The Dark Knight. Number two, Goodfellas. And number one, Jaws. I got three. Jaws? I got. I guess that is a great opening sequence. Jaws. Yeah. 
I got three. Who's close? I think I think Todd wins. Sunset Boulevard. One, two, that's impressive. Four. I got his number two, three, and five. Yeah, Todd. he got Sunset Boulevard. Well, no, I didn't get his number one or two. I mean, I got I got his five, oh. four, and three actually. But, he got his five, right. four, and you got Inglorious Bastard, Sunset Boulevard, and Dark Knight. And the Dark Knight. Yeah. I got Goodfellas, Dark Knight, and Inglorious Bastard. So I got two, three, five. Yeah, but you got Sunset Boulevard. Yeah, I think <laughs> that that. I think it goes to Todd. Yeah, that is that is like the ultimate pulling one out of your ass. So, yeah, I think you get. I thought it, for Todd. sure you'd have Watchmen on. There. I don't even remember the opening of Sunset Boulevard. It's Neither just like do showing, I. The, showing the dead body in the pool. Like that's like the opening, right? I yeah, I think you're right. I don't remember it either, but that's because I haven't seen it. <laughs> <laughs> this is a theme. Not not yet, not yet. I'm sure I will though. That should be that should be like an audio part of the intro. Oh, I I can't say it because I haven't seen it. Put I, that in the intro. To I, I I I will uh, <laughs> add that to uh, to our intro somewhere along the way. Maybe it'll be the intro to uh, the power rankings. That that seems a little more uh, a little more appropriate. Perfect. I, so I think the score my fa- is now ten and a half to five and a half to five. Ah oh, man, he's <laughs> doubled us up now. All right. Well, let's move on. It is now time for trivia. Are you ready? Well, let's hope so. Oh, I forgot about this. John Boyd is a slap in the face. This is going downhill quick. Trivia. And our last uh, venture into trivia was Todd versus Zach, which Zach miraculously pulled out at the end. Yeah, how did that happen? I really don't know. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, in choosing a film, he chose a film for me to watch, which is a film he'd been waiting for me to watch for a very, very, very long time. And that film is Contact, starring uh, Jodie Foster and Matthew McConaughey. From 1997, Robert Zemeckis' follow-up to Forrest Gump. And, uh, and I must say, I was, I was totally taken in by this movie. It is a fascinating film. Uh, I know uh, you'd mentioned it because, you know, we both love Apollo 13, and you, you've you always said, you know, if you love Apollo 13, you're going to love Contact, because it's got space and all this stuff, but it's so much more than just than just a space movie. I mean, the, you you get this uh, contact with uh, an, an extraterrestrial life form of some kind, they don't know what it is, and uh, it is their their hunt, not only for, for these people, but hunt for truth, hunt for, uh, for God, hunt, hunt for faith. Uh, it is absolutely stunning. It makes you really think. It uh, has some incredible themes to it. Um, I, I, I find I find it funny you put this as an opening scene because yes, that the first like couple minutes of that that pulling out of the galaxy and everything is amazing. And and looking at her as a little kid is great. However, I think the next like fifteen to twenty minutes are a little slow. I'm like, okay, where, where, oh, you need where are we going? Where are we? Go- no, the flashback is fine. It's, it's once that's happened and watching her try and, you, you know, we don't need a half hour between the flashback and her actually making contact. I think that was. Oh, we need the Puerto Rico uh, scenes. That's important. Yeah, she sleeps with Matthew McConaughey. It, it right, could have right, right. gone a lot faster through that. 
Um, I, I I do love seeing Bill Fickner in in films. Uh, Blind Bill Fickner is is a good uh, a good addition. Um, no, but I I loved it. I'm giving it three and a half stars. Uh, uh, it, it it's a it's a it's a avoiding a slow beginning to uh, being an absolutely awesome masterpiece. But uh, definitely definitely enjoyed it. Recommend it to anybody. See, it's, it's interesting that you say that, Terry, because this would be a top ten film of all time for me. I think it's pretty much a perfect film until the last fifteen minutes. I think the last fifteen minutes are a little schlocky, a little sentimental, and it doesn't really know when to stop while it's ahead. But up until that point. Man, I talk about a rare blend of amazing special effects and thoughtful, intelligent characters and dialogue that is deep and philosophical and wonderful to listen to. Um, it's it's a it's a sight for the, the the for the eyes and for the ears. It's a wonderful, wonderful experience. And I wish films, I wish films, more films could be like this. I even think they handle the stuff with like CNN and and Bill Clinton really well. You know, I think those are in, in, incorporated in the movie really seamlessly and not corny at all. And uh, it's a great great movie i just wish it wasn't a little corny at the end but that's okay it is uh it is definitely a 90s movie as i'm watching it i'm like there there was there was a definite style to the mid 90s like the mid to late 90s and it fits that to a t with with the score with some of the places that the story takes it and the plot goes um total 90s movie i'm not saying that's a bad thing i actually really like how how those feel but I'm watching like, man, this is total 90s. <laughs> I don't know how uh, Jodie Foster wasn't nominated for an Oscar for Contact. I cannot imagine any other actor in that role. She absolutely nails it. I think it's the best performance of her career, and I don't think anyone else, I couldn't see anyone else in that role. She, She's unbelievable. She it. is pretty great. And, and seeing a young Matthew McConaughey is, uh, is always nice, too. He, he, you know what? God's diplomat, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a man of the cloth, but without the cloth. Exactly. Because, of course, if Matthew McConaughey is going to be a religious uh, pastoral study student, uh, he couldn't really commit to chastity. Let's be honest. He couldn't do that. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. No, I, 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 uh, yeah, I really liked it. Tom Skerritt is always great to see in movies, too. It's never a bad That's movie true. when Tom Skerritt shows up. But, it's uh, quite evil in this movie, though. He is. Well, he is. Bad, he bad is. And wants he to isn't. cut funding. He wants to cut funding. Are you kidding me? Come on, they're so close. They're on the cusp of it, and then he takes credit for it. He's a ba- he's a bad bad man. Yeah, yeah. He's not a good man. Let's put it that way. All right. Yeah, but yes, Contact. If you haven't seen Contact, or if it's been a long time, it's worth a rewatch because it it definitely has some. Uh, some amazing things in there. I I understand now why Joshua Traxel loved this movie. He said instantly the first time he saw it, it was his favorite movie of all time. Immediately, number one. So Joshua, I know you're listening out there. Keep it up, man. It's a great movie. <laughs> I know you're listening. Oh yeah, definitely. He's definitely listening. All right. So uh, that that is our uh, that is our trivia review. Uh, we are now going to move into trivia, and since Zach won, Zach gets to host the trivia game this time of me versus Todd, which is always an interesting battle. Um, Todd, did we figure out the tally of uh, who's won trivia? No. No, we should probably do that at some point. Put it on the list. We need to do that. All right. Um, so, 
uh, Zach has told us nothing about what we're doing. Uh, we're figuring this out right along with you guys. So, uh, Zach, what is our, uh, our trivia topic for today? Well, first of all, I'm going to say the trivia to- topic for today. Lately, we've been getting a little off with our trivia. We've been doing like two or three categories. None of that BS anymore. We're going one category. Mm. That is it. For all the marbles, this is it. Gentlemen, you ready? The category is films that have been released on DVD or Blu-ray by the Criterion Collection. Now, this is the ultimate Zach Saltz category. And I, I you know, if I'm going to host trivia, I want it to be self-indulgent like this. But I love the Criterion Collection. We've talked about the Criterion Collection on the podcast the last couple episodes. I think this is a brilliant opportunity for Terry and Todd to review some of the amazing films that have been released by this wonderful company. And this trivia could go on quite a while because, according to what I'm seeing here, Criterion has released a whopping 963 films on DVD or Blu-ray. So this could go on for hours and hours. Certainly, if I was in this trivia competition, it would go on for hours and hours. But I'm curious to see uh, what Todd and Terry think on their list. I know they're Criterion connoisseurs like I am. Um, so with that said, um, I'm going to, uh, Todd, would you like to start on the list or would you like to go second? Uh, I'll go second. Okay. So Terry, films that have been released on DVD or Blu-ray by the Criterion Collection. Note that Criterion did release films on a uh, laser disc for a long time, but I'm not including those films. Okay. Um, all right. Where do I want to start? Let's start with the Royal Tenenbaums. Correct. Chasing Amy. Correct. Uh, 400 Blows. Correct. The Tree of Wooden Clogs. Correct. Uh, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Correct. Uh, Hoop Dreams. Correct. It's one of their best releases in my opinion. Uh, seventh seal. Correct. Uh, the Silence of the Lambs. Correct. Recently re-released on Blu-ray, out of print for a long time. La Ventura. Correct. Terry, pulling out the uh, Italian New Wave. I like it. I, I may have just looked at the Canopy app this morning. <laughs> oh, <laughs> forgot about that. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, the Tree of Life. Correct. Bicycle Thief. Correct. Rushmore. Correct. They had a thing for Wes Anderson for a while. Eight and a half. Correct. Uh, 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 Clerks. Clerks is correct. Umbrellas of Cherbourg. Correct. Recent release. Uh, the Red Shoes. Correct. One of Marty's favorite films. He might have actually had an extra feature on that DVD, if I remember correctly. The Life Aquatic of Steve Zissou? Correct. (laughs) Uh, Dogma? 
dogma is incorrect. You went the Kevin Smith route. Terry, do you have one more for the win? I have one written down, but I'm not sure if it's right. Um, yeah, I'll go with it. Social network? The social network is incorrect. Oh. That means we have a tie, and we will go to the tiebreaker round. The tiebreaker round, in, in going along with this ex- incredibly indulgent category I've created here, <laughs> <laughs> because we are anything but indulgent on this podcast, the first person to list a Criterion Collection DVD that I own wins. Walkabout. Todd is the champ. Dude, why oh, didn't you say that? Todd. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I was thinking of mine. I wasn't thinking of his. <laughs> it's really funny, Todd, because I just actually purchased the Blu-ray of the Walkabout recently, so I still technically do own oh, the, the DVD, even though I'm about to didn't sell it. That, uh, didn't that come up on Adam Daily Live? I think it did. Yeah. Terry, for shame. Yeah, I wasn't listening at that part of it. <laughs> Yeah, it's actually the social network was not a bad guess because they have released some David Fincher stuff, as you mentioned, the Curious Case Benjamin Button. You should have gone with the game. The, That's oh, the David wow. Fincher film. Well, I I remember released. Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Like its initial DVD release was already Criterion, and so I was thinking right. that that they did something like they've done with Wes Anderson and continued down that route. Or any of the other like Moonrise Kingdom or Moonrise Kingdom was on there. Yes, uh... they, they released Moonrise Kingdom. You should have said that. I wasn't sure how far down the Wes Anderson uh, rabbit hole they went. They re- Darjeeling Limited they released as well. well they love Wes Anderson. And Kevin Smith. And Bottle Rocket. I was, that's why I was going that way. I, I was going to say Bottle Rocket. Man, I, pull, I pulled Anderson. out some random ones, too. I was impressed with La Ventura. I almost <laughs> want to give you the victory just I have for La that. Ventura. I have that movie. It's probably why you got it. <laughs> no, I got it because it's on, it's on Canopy. <laughs> I saw it this morning. Uh, <laughs> Along with Umbrellas of Cherbourg and Eight and a Half and Four Hundred Blows. Seriously, check out Canopy. It's worth it. All right. Absolutely. All right. Well, dang it. I lost. So close. So close. <laughs> All right. It is time for quote of the day. Strawberries. Not the cheese. Womack, you bastard. Quote of the day. All right, I'll start with this one. My quote comes from Die Hard. There's so many different quotes I could have gone from, uh, gone with from Die Hard. The one I decided to go with uh, comes at the beginning of the movie and becomes a major plot point later on. Uh, John McClane is afraid of flying, and so the guy sitting next to him realizes that, and uh, and uh, he looks at him and says, "You want to know the secret to surviving air travel? After you get where you're going." Take off your shoes and your socks, then walk around on the rug barefoot and make fists with your toes. Oh, make fists with your toes. And so when he gets to the Nakatomi Tower, he's making fists with his toes, and then everything goes sideways, and he's left barefoot for the entire movie. But, uh, but yeah. Oh, yeah, make fists with your toes. Come on together, let's have a few laughs. I saw someone made an amazing, uh, an amazing Christmas ornament. Ornament. It's just a little cardboard box, and it it's got just a picture of John McClane in the heater vent sticking out of it, and it's covered in foil. It's pretty amazing. I may need to make it. 
All right, Zach, your quote of the day. My quote of the day is also from Die Hard. You're right, Terry. There's so many great quotes to choose from. I think I'm just going to go with the first one that comes in my head, which is when John McClane is stealing the shoes and he says, Nine million terrorists in the world and i got to kill one with feet smaller than my sister. (laughs) (laughs) It's full of pithy one-liners like that. And in many ways, I could describe this podcast quite well. Now I have a gun. Ha, ha, ha. (laughs) All right. To the victor go the spoils. Todd, what is your quote of the day? All right. Well, I went with uh, the best Farrelly Brothers movie. That's There's Something About Mary. It's a quote from uh, one of my favorite comedic characters played with Unbelievable Slime by uh, Matt Dillon. So, uh... Honestly, like, today is a great day. Like, Aaron Rodgers lost, and so that's a good day. But every time he loses a game the whole next week, we have to hear about the inevitable mention of the previous Packers quarterback. So, like Pat Healy, what the hell is Brett Favre doing here? (laughs) That's what I think every time. (laughs) (laughs) Every time his name is brought up in Packer conversation. Yes. Awesome. We should come up with a list of Todd quotes from movies that aren't even that haven't even been mentioned on the podcast, like a whole episode. <laughs> I, I, I feel like you're always bringing up random quotes. I don't remember that quote because I haven't seen that movie. Um, <laughs> There's something about Mary, <laughs> dude. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know that's a bad one. That's a bad. You're one. The one casting Ben Stiller's your right, he's your director. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's his best like one of his best movies. Yep, Laventure is better though. Don't worry. <laughs> It is. Uh, all right. Yes. Now we're comparing. There's something about Mary to La Ventura. <laughs> let's. Fat Vigo Mortensen would be great in both. I'm. I'm sure he would. Do it. All right. Well, let's let's wrap this up. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Uh, remember to rate and review us on iTunes. Find us at almostsideways.com and our thousand uh, uh, reviews and ratings there. Uh, find us at. Uh, find us on Facebook. Find us on Twitter. Uh, find our blog where, uh, yes, I did write about what an 18 playoff would look like in the college football playoff. It would be pretty amazing. That's all I have to say. Uh, but thank you so much for listening, and uh, we will catch you next time. Until then, have fun watching movies. Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together. <laughs>